everything that seemed to come to me, including the Mahabharata with 28 different cast members, but from 17 different countries, started to tell me that narrative and storytelling and mixing and diversity, which should be the norm, not the exception. And so I started to be an activist, but I realized I was born one. It's in me. Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lagralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. In 1791, they revolted. Dreadful slaughter of 300 whites. Damage to plantations. Enslaved Africans did this. Innocent blood spilt. Slavery rendered the slaves cruel savages. Any uninformed brute can become a ferocious monster. White slaveholders have to account for the savages' barbarity. Black resistance is dangerous. In 1791, they revolted. With weapons drawn and with a fervor upon which their very lives depended, they massacred those who massacred them and emerged victorious. Enslaved Africans did this. In Saint-Domingue, now known as Haiti, they were victorious. They changed the course of history. Yet history books don't want to tell us so. We must know our history so that we may retell it. Just as the griots do. We must pass on the truths, take responsibility for them, treat them as our children. Be thy the author. This is The Authors of History. Hello, and welcome to tonight's episode of Lager Lane Spirits Podcast. What's up, friends? This season, Jason and I are exploring all things identity. We'll revisit moments in American history through the lens of our own family roots and the legacy of the generations that have come before us. Tonight, we're asking ourselves, who are the authors of history? Who reserves that right? But before we get, you know, too heavy into that, let's sink into our drink. What are you making, babe? Yes, yes. Tonight, I'm making a variation of a daiquiri. That's called the Bookman daiquiri. There's a Bookman rum that uh, that uh, that I'm going to swap in and use in this recipe. And the Bookman rum is named after Duty Bookman, who was one of the Haitian priests involved in the 1791 religious ceremony that ignited the Haitian Revolution. Alex Day uh, is an East Coast bartender. He uh, uh, created this drink. Um, he was, I believe, at a bar in Philadelphia, but he got really famous at a bar 
called the De- uh, Death and Company on uh, the Lower East Side in, on Manhattan. And his ingredients are an ounce and a half of rum, half ounce of cognac, three quarters ounce lime juice, and a half ounce of simple syrup. And for this drink tonight, I've included a couple of dashes of Bitter Ends Jerk Bitters. And what I love about the cocktail is that it tells its own story, similar to this exploration of the Haitian Revolution. It includes the French cognac and the Caribbean rum, with the Caribbean rum taking the lead. So as I said earlier, Duty Bookman was one of the religious priests that led this ceremony that ignited the Haitian Revolution. They say, actually, a thunderstorm occurred during this religious ceremony. Thousands of slaves had gathered in this, uh, in, in this area to hear this uh, ceremony and this call to arms for freedom. And they were so terrified by the storm and so inspired by the words that were being expressed. I mean, I, I just can't, can you imagine being there? The impact of what that, in fact, let me check my Google because our listeners can't quite see me, but I actually have a bottle of their, of Bookman rum, Bookman botanical rum. And on the back of it, and shout out to Bookman rum, on the back of their bottle, it says uh, it's, it's, it's wildcrafted in Haiti and imported through Park Street Imports in Miami. And on the back of it is etched in the bottle. It says, it began in 1791 at a secret ceremony where Duty Bookman swore an oath to liberty, sealed it with rum, and sparked the revolution that freed Haiti. Did you know that the 1791 revolution led Great Britain to stop participating in the Atlantic slave trade? And did you know that the recent assassination of the Haitian president is also tied into this couple of centuries old exploration of what has occurred through imperialism on the the the, the island of Santo Domingo. Mm. Huh. Well, you know, I found it interesting that the Louisiana Purchase occurred in part because of the slave revolt. And if you look at history books, Mm -hmm. in fact, I googled Louisiana Purchase and went to Britannica.com. And it says, there are good reasons to believe that French failure in Santo Domingo, the island of Hispaniola, Mm -hmm. The imminence of renewed war with Great Britain and financial stringencies may have all prompted Napoleon in 1803 to offer for sale to the United States the entire Louisiana territory. French failure? <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is why I love history and, and, and why I love what, what we're doing, exploring history through, through our various lenses uh, and also through various cocktails. I wonder who wrote that Britannica entry. Why and how is that person and that source the goddamn author of history, right? It's, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly disturbing to me. And we we know the answer has to do with who has majority power, okay? I mean, me as a Black and Filipino woman, my attention goes to the slave revolt because I identify with it. And I want to scream to the rooftops about what really happened. And, and this is why, as storytellers and creatives, I think it's imperative that we take responsibility to tell the truth, like, sincerely, to the best of our ability to tell the truth. Yeah, because, because if we don't do it, who will, right? 
it's it's crucial that black and brown and LGBTQ and so on and so on and so on, whatever is your identity, you know, that that you have the power, resources, and opportunity to tell stories that matter to you and to make art that reflects truth and perspective. And, and that's why we started our respective film and theater companies, right, Yvonne? Lagra Lane and Laura Depp Theater to give space to power for others and ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we started these two, our companies, Lower Depth, our theater company, Lager Lane, our film company, because, you know, we wanted to be the answer to why we wanted to support and be an answer to and a place where people could come to to tell their stories um, and, 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 and provide the answer by providing a platform. And also to tell our stories, right? I mean, to help support filmmakers, theater practitioners, to tell stories um, that were important to them and also to, uh, for these platforms to be a launching pad for us to tell our own stories in intimate and important ways, right? And, and we love to acknowledge too that both storytelling ways, both art forms um, deliver a different kind of experience and and then do it in completely different ways where you're doing it in community and you know everything is live on stage or if you are in also in community but it's in these moving images that would be you know you wouldn't be able to do that also on stage i mean look at the play that lord depth commissioned in 2018 safe harbor mhm well yeah, and that's that's a perfect point because Yvonne, you know we we got to a point right in our acting careers where we in our own individual acting careers where we got interested as citizens of the world and as artists to take on issues that were and are important to us on deep levels. And as you mentioned, uh, the, the, the play in 2018 that we commissioned part of our cycle of violence series for Lower Depth Theater, Safe Harbor grew out of that. Babe, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I, yes, absolutely. I mean, just like we were questioning authorship, representation, and accountability with Safe Harbor, it all started with a conversation around the table with the members of our theater company asking, what is something we see in our community, being Los Angeles, that literally thrives in the dark and needs to be brought into the light? And one of those answers was child sex trafficking, and which we learned was tragically thriving in our own backyard, not in some other country. It was, it was right here. And that's why we hired our dear friend here, Palmquist, to investigate and write, write truthfully, uh, you know, from multiple different perspectives. And in the process, we educated Angelinos and ourselves about sex trafficking. We became accountable for a community and we provided a platform where we could actually talk about hope. How do we find a pathway to hope, even while we're talking about, uh, young people being taken advantage of and but and to play devil's advocate right uh what if you know sometimes i just want to write a story or tell a story about a shoelace right like you know i remember when when i had the opportunity to play county cullen in a play in chicago when when we first met yvonne uh mm -hmm. at, at victory gardens i i remember I also had the opportunity to play Langston Hughes. And so I, I remember a kind of a, a creative struggle that the, that those two awesome poets of the Harlem Renaissance had, where, whereas Langston Hughes was a, was the voice of the, the poetic voice of, a, of several generations. County Cullen just wanted to be a poet. He wanted to 
write mm-hmm. poems about flowers, still art on a on a shelf, right? And so, like, you know, if I don't want to get deep all the time with each and everything we're doing, you know, is is that, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but am I being a disservice to the arts, my people, my opportunity, my platform? Hmm. You know what? Sometimes I just want to be able to watch a comedy and just laugh like everybody else. <laughs> but we don't get that opportunity. Often, I don't right? want to think we about have... how hard it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't want to think about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Uh, I just want to think about, I want to enjoy a nice breakfast, just like all the other people who don't have to think about this stuff. <laughs> Yep. <sighs> Doesn't yep. that sound nice? That's why you got to drink a cocktail while you have these That's conversations. A, yes, yes. And I remember when Grace, <laughs> our uh, our oldest child, came to us when she was about six years old, first grade, and she had, was having nightmares. We listened to NPR in our house, and and she came to us and said she's having nightmares because her skin is kind of dark, and and she had the cops uh, chasing after her in her dreams. And we took that to school at a parent conversation, and we told them, and we were listening to parents kind of kind of debate and complain about how their their kids uh, just don't get along or how do you, you know, mm-hmm. they're having a hard time just kind of settling down and focusing or just settling down for dinner. And we were like, well, our kid is complaining about racism in America and uh, she's six years old. And what do we do about this? And how do we prepare her, as she said, a, a child whose skin is 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 kind of dark, to, uh, to, to face a life living in this zeitgeist in this world that we live in uh, you know we don't often get the chance to just sit and write a play about bacon right right but that being said i mean uh is the question if if a black artist tells a story about a shoelace is it inherently political i mean some would argue yes yes and others would argue yes too yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, one of the projects that we're exploring in uh, in in Lagra Lane is an adaptation of another Harlem Renaissance uh, novel, Infants of the Spring. And uh, uh, Wallace Thurman wrote Infants of the Spring in the 1930s. And what what I've always loved about the, his exploration in that book is he takes on um, what they called uh, it was a manor, a, a boarding house in Harlem in the 1930s where these artists lived and some just wanted to drink gin and others wanted to write the novel of their time, right? The next great black American novel. And it seems like these type of conver- this type of conversation, babe, is what they were having a mm-hmm. hundred years ago. We're having it now. Can I just be an artist or do I have to uplift the race? And I, you know, I am one to believe that black art is innately and inherently political because there are individuals out there who do not see the humanity in quote unquote others. So every time we do express our own humanity, it becomes a political act. It is interesting because you want to be able to, you want to be able to choose one way or the other, but for a person of color, it could be that it has to be both at the same time, but you want the privilege of being able to choose. You don't always get that. And, uh, and yes, like in Harlem, to have been a fly on a wall there. Oh, by the way, this Bookman Daiquiri is so delicious. And <laughs> I think <laughs> I really appreciate the nod to the French influence. I mean, the French and Napoleon were basically 
no kind of good for Africans. <laughs> but to deny that existence in the story is also to erase a part of the story. We, we, we. You know, I hear you, and I think, I think you've been waiting uh, this entire episode just to you know break out your your, your French, Yvonne. Mais oui, je parle français un peu. J'ai étudié au lycée et maintenant j'espère de <laughs> de parler français beaucoup. I love you, babe. <laughs> Some French you, person is going to come. Somebody from the from the academy is going to come and be like, "Listen, you said that all wrong." <laughs> just got to say to bring it back to the cocktail. Uh, you know, um, I, I we could just be drinking a daiquiri. I mean, a simple daiquiri. Ernest Hemingway sipped on his daiquiris in Cuba, and a simple daiquiri that he sipped on is a wonderful cocktail. Bringing in the Caribbean element, bringing in the Bookman element, the Bookman daiquiri story to a daiquiri pour just innately brings in, inherently brings in a richness of history and also a richness of color because I know our our listeners cannot quite uh, see the coloration of our cocktail. And there is a kind of a deep brownish hue to it with the cognac and the rum kind of colliding uh, that really is uh, is is spectacular. It's kind of a light brown, kind of like kind of like my skin tone. I love that because I remember the first time you made me a daiquiri, and I was like, "Oh, that's delicious!" But to actually look at you know how we are color obsessed, even within the black community, uh, and that now that visually we're able to see how we can influence a drink, and and in in a way, whether it be a drink or food or any of those things, mm-hmm. and and take back take back or influence or acknowledge our our presence and history. Yeah, you know what? We're going to have brown rum and everything now. Cognac, anything that's got some hue, we're going to say, you know what? You need a little bit of history that was forgotten. A, 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 a paper bag test for our cocktails is what we're saying. Huh? No, no, Jason. It's <laughs> no, not a no paper vo- bag test. No, no vodka up in It's not a paper no, bag test because really dark-skinned black people be like, you know what? <laughs> Screw your paper bag test. Hey, uh, I, 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 anyway, so, I wouldn't pass the yes. paperback test. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that, and I love you, babe. Tonight, our guest is the extraordinary actor and activist Erica Alexander, Woo-hoo. who has got a whole lot to say about artistic responsibility. She sure does. Hey, Erica Alexander, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm great, Jason. Great to see you, Yvonne. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you. So as we all know, we we're, and we are so excited about this uh, podcast where uh, we're talking about identity. And this one, we're talking about you know, who are the authors of history. And we're so excited to have Miss Erica Alexander here. Matt, um, our COO, we got to meet you guys, Colorform Media, at South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. And I remember just feeling like, oh my God, we have found, we had found kin in this journey to create <laughs> diversity, equity, inclusion, exploring identity. Yeah. And none other than Color Farm and Erica Alexander are, are doing the same thing. So I thought, okay, we got to keep... At that time, it was because of the John Lewis story, Good Trouble. I remember sitting in that lobby 
And, um, you know, having never been to South by Southwest, you were one of the first people we met. And I thought, wow, <laughs> if South by Southwest is like this, this is going to be great. It, you know, it, it was all downhill from there. But no, I'm just kidding. No, but it, was actually really cool. <laughs> it was actually cool. But you you set it off in a very high standard. So and then it was wonderful oh. to meet Jason later on. So that's cool. Yeah, I came in the conversation a little bit later. And 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 I, I just got to say, you know, as a as a man of a certain age, you know, I, I am a huge fan of your acting work. Always have been Thank since you. the mid 90s there. And so when the conversation started, started between you and Yvonne and, and Ben and Matt, you know, and, and I, and I missed that conversation. I was doing some work up in Denver at the time, but when, by the time I came in, when they told me that y'all were chopping it up, I was like, Oh, I, this isn't, this is incredible. And so to go from the <laughs> acting space to the activism space mm-hmm. spaces and the documentary storytelling and everything that you are doing and all about, it's just very exciting to me because I feel like Yvonne, my wife and I have a similar kind of drive in storytelling coming at it from actors and also as producers yeah. as well. And so it's just really, really cool to to have you here on our podcast talking about the, uh, these these themes that we're going to launch into. I just needed to say that because I'm kind of geeking out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and for, for our listeners that are... I appreciate it. For our listeners that are out there, as Jason has definitely demonstrated here, that Erica is beloved for her iconic acting roles as Maxine Shaw. Yeah. Uh, in Living Single, Detective Latoya in Get Out, Perenna in Black Lightning, Linda Diggs in Wu-Tang and American Saga, and Bob Ballard in Run the World. And I have witnessed this as well. Erica wears many hats, not only as an actress, but as a trailblazing activist, entrepreneur, creator, producer, and director. And I believe this is true, an all-around boss. Thank you. I want to be that as well. Me and too. Uh, as <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and uh, as we've said already, she's the co-founder of Color Farm Media, um, and she represents one of the most bold, daring, and powerful voices in our country today. And we are so happy to have you here. Bless you. Thank you, Yvonne. Can I marry you? <laughs> yes. I, I, I need you say nice things about me like that. I gotta get married to you. Bye, Jason. <laughs> Beat it. These are just. Uh, this is when. This is when I just silence myself yeah. right now. And Based just on listen. what Jason just said, he's he'd be like, "That'd be okay. That'd be all right." <laughs> Love it. So, Erica, I was wondering if you could also give our listeners a, a little bit of a background uh, on your entry into TV and film, and then you know how activism also became this role that you also play. I guess. You got, we got to think of it as play at some point when it comes to activism, right? It's just to keep it, yeah, keep it real, but definitely. keep it fun and find the joy and the love, you know. Sure. So actually, I started my career, or was I was actually discovered, you know, usually one of these types of stories that people back in the day used to hope to be discovered by Hollywood. It actually, it actually happened to me. I was fourteen. My mother had put me in a summer uh, program at New Freedom Theater in Philadelphia. We had just moved there. There was a six-week program, and in the fifth week, a movie came to town, and they were looking for little girls to audition for this movie, a Merchant Ivory film called My Little Girl, starring Mary Stuart Masterson, Geraldine Page, and James Earl Jones. After a whole mess of auditions and screen tests, the little girl they found was me. From there, I got my little SAG card and, you know, started my journey. Um, At the time, they represented not just, you know, an engine which of course I had no idea what they were, but healthcare for us was a big deal because actually I'm from Arizona. 
Um, originally, my both my parents were orphans. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, we were just talking about Arizona. Mm-hmm. Is oh come on, it's gonna be the new uh, you know place to be at because everything is too hot or too cold or falling into the ocean. <laughs> but um, I'm from Arizona. Both my parents were orphans. I'm one of six, and I spent the first eleven years of my life in a hotel called Starlight off of Route 66. So uh, my father, who was an itinerant preacher, Church of God in Christ. Pentecostal, then changed to German Lutheran, had a bad heart his whole life. And uh, so it made things very difficult for us. We, I started working around five years of age with my sisters and brothers walking around people's houses, knocking on doors, asking to take out garbage, sweep their porch, whatever we could do, um, recycling cans and, and bottles. To this day, I can't pass a can or a bottle on the street without thinking, you know, that could be half a penny, a quarter of a penny, because that's how we made up for basically a life where he was a tipped wage worker because that's how you do it. You pass the plate. So, you know, fate stepped in and and the German Lutherans uh, ended up kind of adopting him as a pastor. And they really liked him because he was very charismatic. This was just at the 70s where they were looking for new sort of uh, people to bring into the fold, maybe because the 60s were so harsh and, and very debilitating. And they uh, started to sponsor him and they sent him to first Poughkeepsie, New York, to be an apprentice there um, as a, a, a pastor, and then to Philadelphia to the Lutheran Theological Seminary. That's why we were there. So long story short, there I was in this summer program, got my little SAG card, moved forward. My mother said I could do it as long as I kept my grades up. I was in the Philadelphia High School for Girls and Academic High School, so that worked out. I eventually got into NYU, but I didn't stay past two weeks because a uh, uh, play came to town. It was Peter Brooks, Mahabharata. And Peter Brooks, a really heavy director from England. Yes. It was a nine hour play. And I asked my mother, could I do it? Cause he had uh, wanted to cast me. And she said, you know, you're going around the world. I can't give you an education like that will be. So I left, I didn't go back to college, but it started my career. It started me going to work with the Royal Shakespeare theater, um, doing plays and a lot of independent films. And eventually that's where Camille Cosby saw me doing a play at the public theater, Joseph Papp's last play. It was a play called Forbidden City with the great Gloria Foster. Gloria Foster is that yes. fantastic actress who was in. you telling this story. I mean, wow. you're right. Yeah. This is, keep going, keep going. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, it, it, um, and so Gloria Foster was the wonderful actress in The Matrix, which says, uh, first matrix, have a cookie, you feel right as rain. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is Camille Cosby's best friend. And apparently the story goes that Camille Cosby kept bugging Bill Cosby saying, you have to see the play to see Gloria and this girl. And I was the girl she was talking about. He never saw the play, but I get a call one day and come to his house. The casting director meets me and he makes up the role of cousin Pam for me right there. And there I was now on TV schedule. And that started my whole thing toward Maxine Shaw living single and those types of things and giving me a broader scope in terms of what I could do inside of the world of entertainment. And so that's kind of my origin story. That is an awesome origin story. Uh, you're also the co-founder of- Thank Co- you. Yes, yes. You're the co-founder of Color Farm Media. And I'm just wondering if you can you know, tell us uh, how you how you started that up, how you, know, how you met Ben, how's, how's that going? You know, you're not jump because it is a natural extension of your storytelling past, right? But mm-hmm. how you- have maneuvered from your acting space to this documentary film, a social activism stance. Sure. Going back because your um, background is, is similar to mine in terms of being 
a part of what creators do. I mean, as an actor, you're more of a tool than toolmaker. <laughs> I would right. always wanted to be more of a toolmaker. So when I was on those sets and experiencing the inequities that Yvonne sort of hinted at, specifically if you are a black woman, they are um, very you know, apparent, especially back in the day. I started acting in the 80s. And if you're a dark-skinned woman, it gets even more apparent because of the things they ask you to do. So just being Black in the industry at all is a miracle. If you're able to do it at any level and be successful, Mm -hmm. it almost never happens, Uh, which is a shame because we've been so really great as being the culture makers for the world, not just America. But we've been cut off from storytelling. And I think it was specifically because it it is the most powerful tool for change. That is the truth. I didn't realize that then when I was too young to realize that. I just knew that I wasn't, didn't want to do parts where I was going to play just foster children, prostitutes, and a slave. And that's the first three roles I played, including yeah. the first role that they found me for. I was a foster child. So I, I, I thought, wow, I want to do some of the, the roles of the ingenue, you know, the ingenue where you get to, to, to play, you know, whether it's Juliet and those types of things. And um, I was told by um, my agent, my agent, when I mentioned that, she said, oh, Erica, no one would ever mistake you for an ingenue. <laughs> I was 19. You know, <laughs> no one would say that to Scarlett Johansson. No. Right. You know, I think right. she thought that <laughs> as a sort of a, I don't know, a backwards compliment to say that, oh, you're much more grounded and deep. But I, I took that as where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to do? Because at the time, if hmm. you didn't do those roles, the only things you could do was wait to be old enough to play authority mm-hmm. figures, uh, you know, judges, the help, that type of things. And that would be for a very long time to come because I would be playing teenagers even when I wasn't a teenager mm-hmm. for a while. And if you're of color, you stay younger looking for a longer mm-hmm. time. So, you know, I, I didn't know what they would do with me. But when you think about that, that's what got me, Jason, into trying to figure out how I could be more in charge of my destiny. I, like I said, I was out in those mean streets asking people for jobs at five. So I had already been inside of a, an economy that I, that I thought that I was helping my parents because not because I was doing it to be nice. That's was survival. And to me, I knew that I needed to be in survival mode there. I started looking at the writers and the executive producers on Cosby show and other shows that I started to be on and thinking, wow, they do have power. I've got to learn how to write. So therefore, it takes me a very long time to figure out how I could gain the discipline to write and that it's a real craft and you just don't show up and say, oh, I'm a writer. But it it didn't occur to me then. And I just kept plugging at it badly for a while. And then I ended up marrying a writer. Tony Perrier was the first African-American to write a a movie that made over $100 million. He wrote Mm -hmm. Eraser. And he was uh, my husband. I married him at 27. And uh, he was the first one to sort of say, Erica, you got to sit your butt in that chair. You've got to discipline yourself and you've got to go to your finish. And writing's not writing, it's rewriting and sort of giving me some sort of, you know, uh, template to think about it. And also some of the confidence that he had rubbed off on me. And he kept saying, you know, you got to read to be a good writer, you know, bullshit in, bullshit out, you know, things like that. And then uh, we started creating together a little bit and trying to make things like Concrete Park, which became a graphic novel and things like that. But over time, I started to see that the the more I wrote and the more I created things, the more powerful I felt. The less powerful I felt waiting for a call from an agent or, you know, getting a role and everybody saying, oh, you're doing so well. My God, you're great. You're great. But then nothing comes of it. 
and you could huh. be encouraged to death. So there you are. The inequities didn't just spread about because of racism. They were there because in the inherent um, place that you are as an actor yeah. is yeah. one of yeah. non-power <laughs> until you get famous. And you were not going to get famous in that paradigm. That was not going to be it. Uh, people like Halle Berry could get famous and push that forward a bit. And even yeah. she had very, yeah. big, great difficulties. She talks about it. And then there were the few that made it past that and they only allowed for a few and it's still that way to some degree. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I, I as an actor, my, my kind of story, I'm of German, my, my birth mom is German and my birth dad's a brother is African-American from Nebraska. I, so I, my, my whole thing as an actor, when I, when I was uh, much younger, it was, I was too, too light to be dark, too dark to be light. And, you know, the casting room didn't quite know what to do with me. I was, couldn't be on the streets, too light for the streets, too, too dark for the for the boardroom and so it's so it's, i yep. am, am finding some you know this past decade i'll be 50 this year this past decade i've on especially on the stage i found more work in that role of whatever that is that that represents right whatever that zeitgeist is that's what that's what's coming at me now so i hear you loud and clear with let's pick up the reins ourselves let's let's go tell some stories and uh and that's brought the pen to my hand and and as well yeah so that's what that's yeah that's absolutely cool. Yeah, you know, colorism has killed many of a career, but it's also really distorted what what being oh black goodness. is. Yeah. We're all setting up here with some form of mostly, you know, you very specifically, but Europeanism in us. If it's not mm-hmm. in our DNA, it's certainly in our outlook and in the way we think. So here we are talking about who's too dark to be mm-hmm. this or that. And light skinned brothers like you were kept from the very dramatic mm-hmm. roles because Sidney Poitier and Denzel Washington and with Wesley Snipes to get those roles, you had to be dark skinned. And the era of the light skinned brother getting those roles was before then when they were the ones who were transitioning from a white sort of space inside yeah. of the, you know, the Lena Horn age where they had lighter skinned men play, you know, a different form of sort of the, the acceptable white version of what black people could be. And it's so messed up. It's unreal. And I look now and think we've also digested and ate those uh, stereotypes as well. So you still see them propagated that the light skinned person will cannot seem to break through on those roles. And when they do, people are like, oh, oh my gosh, but why is that? Uh, uh, we should be able to go back and forth, you know, but it's destroyed us. Yeah. As a black Filipino woman, you know, coming to, you know, being, I mean, I love the theater and I loved storytelling. And, and even in that space, I thought, oh, wow, I'm black and Filipino, but in order to be in this space, I have to choose. I have to choose what, which route I'm going to go down based on what those people see. And I did that for a long time because I love being black. But then I realized, you know, there was always this situation where I had internalized, um, which is very different from yeah. this kind of black, white dynamic, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the outside of that, but I'm also, so I've yep. got two browns, <laughs> brown and black that I'm, you know, trying to navigate, you know, as a child taking into my adulthood into, into career, not, not black enough to be mm. black, not Filipino enough to be Filipino. People don't even know what Asian is. Like they think it's only one thing. And, you know, not even realizing that I was coming up in an age where, where Asian American Pacific Islander was actually like an activist term to link together all people of all, you know, whether you're Asian or Pacific Islander, just to have a platform. And so then that identity of the the specific identity of being Filipino is now not as important. And if you want to have a platform, right? So that's why we're hired, you know, if you're 
Chinese, but you get hired for being Korean or you're Filipino, but you get hired for being Japanese because there's this movement that all of us have to come together. So it's interesting just on both sides of like how, how I've had to figure out how to identify myself for other people uh, because, and, and stops and stop with the, I'm not black, not black enough to be black, not Filipino enough to be Filipino. And people don't know that Asian people can be dark. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in terms of the mm-hmm. industry and their experience. No, and that's a story I would love to see. I would love to see that story. I would pay money to see a, a person with your face and your background be in that space, whether it was in the Philippines or here in the United States. And what that means, because what what was it like for you, Yvonne, going into those rooms? They think, oh, she's exotic. Like, what was the reception that you got? Um, well, it actually came to the point where, for me, the word exotic became... It wasn't a compliment because what it actually did was show that mm-hmm. person's ignorance about what the world actually looks like, right? Like, oh, you're exotic. Oh, you're Hawaiian. Oh, you're, you know, and then you'd have to, there was only so long, so many times that I could say, you know, that this is a teaching moment. Um, so, I mean, even as an artist, what I ended up realizing was that the people who are making those choices, and this is like, you know, I'm not, I'm not at your level of career and where you were in your career, but this is like in the beginning like the people who are making those choices is not necessarily the head casting director. It's the young people whose life experience is mm-hmm. limited. You are not getting into rooms based on someone who's only seen this much of the world, right? And so I guess when I would walk into the room, I would just hope that, you know, it was these things where I was giving over so much power, hoping that I was black enough or maybe if not black enough, maybe pretty enough. And I didn't even think about going out for Asian roles because there weren't enough. And I didn't feel comfortable being lumped into the Asian world. I, I'm Filipino. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Isn't that interesting? And you can make that distinction. And here I am saying that here I am, I was too black for the room. So then that meant that the thing I'm complaining about is the one thing that would have pushed you forward, meaning that there was a definite sort of expectation of me because they could tell what I was. I wasn't confusing them like you or Jason. And so you know, one thing that's holding me back is the one thing that could have pushed you forward. And the thing that held me back ultimately was the thing that, that you have. It's so messed up what we're talking about. That's the tricky, all the levers and, 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 and pulleys and, and of, of, of American racism. You know, my mentor acting wise coming up in Chicago was, was brother Harry Lennox. And Harry told me, uh, to pulled me aside a couple of times and was just like, dude, just walk your path, man. Just walk your path. Don't, you know, just, it, whatever will come to you will come to you and don't get hung up in it. It is what it is. Yep. I mean, the, the big question is, uh, you know, and we've touched on it a bit, but to even go deeper as we're talking about who are the authors of history, like what responsibility do you feel you hold as an artist and you can weave in a little bit if you'd like, you know, like what the kind of work that you're doing with Color Farm Media, but also talk about the responsibility that it takes. Uh, you know, can, can we just be artists or, or are we holding a bigger platform where we have to be a little bit more conscious of the path that we're going down? So what responsibility do you feel you hold as an artist? I think to be an artist is the oh. hardest thing. Okay. I think it's the hardest thing in the world. I think that it's uh, it's mm-hmm. it's noble, and I think that it asks from you more than a pound of flesh. And I think that anybody takes it on with any sort of seriousness, 
understands that after a while, there's a lot of real joy of meeting people and and being able to to have the ability to see past the boundaries that we put in front of each other. And, and I'm talking about whether it's the physical boundaries, territory, race, gender, all those things, that's our job. But also um, it's it's a responsibility to demand some kind of truth from the world and and keep pushing truths in front of people so we move forward. I believe that because of all these years of bad storytelling, that's why white superiority was ruling. And if you st- mm-hmm. we saw a great mm-hmm. example of it with George Floyd, mm-hmm. where that police officer who in my world wouldn't have even rated as somebody I probably would have hung out with, he doesn't even look like he's that interesting or anything, held the power of life and death over that black man with his knee on his neck and he did it in broad daylight and he didn't even blink he while he was being recorded he knew in his heart that he would not be held accountable or so he thought but the truth is that's because storytelling told him so and it continues to perpetuate these types of narratives so what do i uh, think that being an artist is about or a creator or any of these things is that we need new worlds. We need new authors. We need new points of view. We need new discoveries. We need new stories and strategies and not just the new versions of familiar brands. And I believe in what Reverend Barber said, that this is the beginning of the third re- reconstruction. Yep. And we have to push beyond the boundaries that perpetuate white supremacy, tell a better story, but also tell the truth. And so we demand, we support, we amplify, and we repeat. That's what we do. And that's what artists do. They think it's about celebrity. They think it's about red carpets. They think it's about all these sort of things that people may get, but that's the very spew at the top 90 something percent of SAG are not working and can barely um, have health care. Hillary Swank got the Oscar that night and went to go eat burgers. She had no health care when she won that Oscar. And so here we are in a position to not only provide some kind of, uh, I think, deliver some kind of justice. They're talking about critical race theory. Critical race theory is built, in, even though it's not taught for it by anything except for law schools and colleges, if you take it. but. But it really is actually embedded inside of storytelling. Yep. And that's why I laugh yeah. that people think that Juneteenth was going to be such a small thing. I said, no, it's another way and reason to start to have conversations about stories that no one will tell. And that is actually the key to planting the seeds that will change everything. It won't be legislation. Legislation is changed by storytelling and narrative. It won't be its story. We've told a story about the man called Jesus Christ, and it has lasted for hundreds of oh, years. Yes. That's how powerful storytelling mm-hmm. is. So, you know, you can tell that about Muhammad and or Confucius and or Buddhism or whatever. Storytelling is the key and creators are the key to that. And so anybody who's in that game is my brother. Anybody that's doing those types of narrative changes and giving their all to it, whether they're inside of it as a performer, actor or producers like you, um, they have the utmost respect. It is military strategy and we should see it as so. But it's smuggled in through storytelling. (laughs) Erica, that is tremendous. And I was going to ask, I found a quote that you had said about John Lewis, about meeting Mr. Lewis. You said, uh, you said (laughs) the boy from Troy, Alabama reminded you of the girl from Flagstaff, Arizona. (laughs) And I now know one, I I now know loud and clear what you, what you meant by that. The political, your, your, your politicalism is, is, is right on point and we share it 100%. And this leads me into 
this, this our, our final big question, Sister Erica, how has your identity and responsibility as an artist changed over your career? I mean, we've touched on it throughout the episode tonight, but I'm just wondering if you have some thoughts on that. Again, I'll ask it again. How has your identity and responsibility as an artist changed over your career? Well, I thought I was being an artist to ask for better roles and then want to build them or at least create or function as a person who could do it if I couldn't demand it or see it for myself. That led me to really start to ask questions about why it is I was in the position I was in because I started to see myself, see through myself the collateral damage of what racism is. I saw it then and understood better the story of my parents, you know, young itinerant pastors on the road having six kids and and the things that they had to do or endure just to maintain and, and survive. I started to see it inside of the narratives that were being told that I was a part of. I was in so many social stories, whether it was Long Walk Home with Whoopi Goldberg, Common Ground in Boston, the busing up there, everything that seemed to come to me, including the Mahabharata with 20, 28 different casts sorry, 28 different um, cast members, but from 17 different countries, started to tell me that narrative and storytelling and mixing and diversity should be the norm, not the exception. And so I started to be an activist, but I realized I was born one. It's in me. The DNA of Harriet Tubman is in me. The DNA of people who have come way before us, black, white, and otherwise, and found common ground with each other and moved this country forward is the reason that it would be the thing I'd have to take up in order to tell a better story, even if I couldn't be in them. So being Black in America is having to navigate or confront racism every day. And being a Black actress, especially dark skin, as I say, it's not meant to be a political act, but it became one. And so activism is finding a way to discuss the disparities and the inequities and the inheritance that are inherent inside a complicated system. and you are not encouraged to do that. There's so many systemic issues at play that after a while, the downward pressure on your opportunities and your wages, the narrative, all that, the real damage that's made in the world has to be confronted. But narratives shape how we see each other, definitely for good, bad, or ugly. And the story, again, about the police officer who murdered George Floyd in in broad daylight told himself it was a lie. And so if I'm a storyteller and I'm inside of this space that's so powerful, then all you can do is take up arms against the sea of trouble and by opposing in them, as Shakespeare says, to die, to sleep no more. You got to do what you got to do. That's my, that, uh, that's my Harriet, the swamps that we're walking now. If Harriet can do it, we can. And so that's how it is. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I just love everything that you're, that you're saying right now. And I, I, and I remember, and it wasn't an acting class there's some people that, you know, they just haven't, uh, they, there are the trappings of Hollywood and that's what you go after. And I think when I was younger, I, I definitely went after, I just want to tell a great story and play a great character. That's me as an artist. And then, and then I realized that that's not the way, even, you know, even at the theater level or the film level, like it doesn't always, you don't always get to choose the kinds of stories that you want to tell. And it's so at some point, and that's what I love hearing, what I'm hearing, what you're saying is, is that at some point you have to figure what figure out what you stand for, and even yes. as an artist, what do you stand for? That informs all yeah. of your work, and that informs who you're going to work with, and the kinds of stories you're going to tell. But in, if you are chasing the carrot 
of this fairy tale of what it is to be an artist, then you're actually not being true to yourself because you have to do soul searching to figure out, not just to dive into a character, to figure out about this mom who's the, you know, who has a single mom with three kids and is trying to make it. You actually have to have an opinion about the world and what it means for a black single mom with three kids, three black boys, and what she has to do in order to make that story work. And it has to be a part of your life narrative and not just because you want to go play that role because it sounds like you get to cry, which is what I would think, you know, that seems very, it's making it very, very, very simple. But I definitely remember this moment when what do I stand for and letting all of that inform everything. And that was the thing that was, that led me down to like a more complete life, just, just being happy as a person. So I could give that to the world as we fight to make it a better place. Speaking of fighting to make it a better place, let me, while we still have Erica on here, we got to mention, we got to bring up, if you can give us just kind of a, a little bit of a sneak peek at what you have coming up with, uh, with dear Evanston. Yes. Which is, uh, which we have been talking about. I just wonder if you can just share a little bit about what's going on with that doc. Absolutely. So we've been talking about it from a few ways, the point of view of, of, of how you get into inside of this. So documentary making came out of me really being an activist. Um, I had always admired Hillary Clinton because she was a Scorpio and she, I like, I like loud women. I like strong women. I like women who people are set against. It's always um, um, made me curious to find out what they were about because I believe that strong women are not supported enough. They're often made wicked <laughs> witches. And so um, that sort of led me to her cause. And it was before um, uh, uh, Senator Obama had joined in. I'd already been asked by several Black women to support her. And through this sort of journey, I met the kings and the queens of social, uh, not just activism, but um, civil rights. And one of them was John Lewis. And uh, I remained friends with one of his uh, staff members. And I got a call one day and they said, you know, we heard you started a new company. That was Color Farm Media uh, with Ben Arnon, who's my co-founder in that. We think that uh, there's this uh, documentary and would you get involved? Um, you know, they could use some help. I said, I'd do anything I could. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever. I don't need to have anything to do with it. I would, I would love to help because I want to be of service to John Lewis. And <clears throat> long story short, yes. ended up um, um, doing a documentary about him and producing, beginning Dawn Porter, who had done Bobby Kennedy for president yes. and um, a really fantastic uh, filmmaker. And she said she was doing something about John Lewis. And we said, hey, let's partner up. And she was like, I'm down. And then suddenly we were on our way. We did not know then that this would be two, the last year before he would pass away, the pandemic would start and all these things. We'd get it done just in the nick of time before everything shut down. And then he would have his great final act of not only passing away, but in a year that we needed that energy, good trouble, to push away some of the, the, the very dark energy that had settled inside of, of our, um, our, our democracy. And that's sometimes you just you realize you just say yes to life because you go, what's the right thing to do? He's done so many things for us, but it also did so much for us as a young mm -hmm. company. It put us in a position to be able mm -hmm. to talk to people like you about what we were doing and also tell people what we were trying to do. We wanted to rebrand blackness. We called ourselves the Motown of film, television and tech. 
We knew that blackness had been branded evil and more importantly, dark and ignorant and dangerous. We, we knew that if it could be branded that way, it could be unbranded. It could be rebranded. Yes. And so that's what our goal is. So mm-hmm. ultimately, if you see things and we appreciate people like Chadwick Boseman, who's a Black Panther of Wakanda, and that fictional story mm-hmm. is a Stanley and Jack King Kirby thing. But mm-hmm. there they were telling a story about this Black king that needed to be realized decades later by this Black actor that would only have the power to do it then. And so therefore, things like that documentary led to Dear Evanston. And Dear Evanston is a documentary that we're now, all of us, a part of. Thanks to you, we're pushing forward. It is a story about reparations. We started doing a documentary about reparations with my co-director, Whitney Dow, who did The Whiteness Project and had done Two Towns of Jasper. And he's a white man who was working inside of race and, and, and narrative change, or at least wanting to bring more white ears. And I said, I'm down with that. We uh, started off with Sheila Jackson Lee, Juneteenth, 2019 in D.C., and then suddenly the story popped up and somebody gave us a call and said, you need to check out what's going on in Evanston, Illinois, with Robin Rue Simmons, the alderwoman. And we got down there and we were able to film the sort of emergence of the Rosa Parks of reparations. And Mm -hmm. she was the first person to pass a bill for reparations in American history. And this on the yes. the the um, the evening of two thousand uh, excuse, excuse me yeah two thousand nineteen, which would of course uh, be the sixteen nineteen project was yeah four hundred years of that, and I thought that that was no mistake as well. So there we were following her, and we asked to engage and be with her, and she said yes, please come with me on this journey. That we thought it was important that we document this, that this was American history that. This was the most historic thing that could happen, that if black black people were getting ready to have a reckoning, and this is the third reconstruction, and we are the architects of it, then she's one of them. Yes. And so to have a to be sitting on the bus with Rosa Parks, that's what it's like. And so we've been doing that for the past year and a half. You guys join our cause and become producers and supporters yes, yes. of this film. But also, we're also doing other things inside of that. We're doing... Uh, a reparations podcast that we did uh, with uh, Charlemagne the God, who called me one day and was like, yo, queen, you still doing that reparations thing? And I was like, yeah, come do it with me, the Black Effect Network. <laughs> and so we were there awesome. doing that. Now we're doing a new one with with Audible and um, also uh, uh, Kevin Kevin Hart and him have a, a deal. And that's called uh, Finding Tamika about a Black woman who went missing in Spartanburg, South Carolina and getting into that. And we're looking not just at this murder, which was very heinous and, and horrible, but we're looking at it. who was the woman that we lost. We have Black women and girls disappearing all the time. We don't know who they are. And they're here in broad daylight. We should look for them. We should look to see why uh, Diamond Reynolds was in that that car screaming about Philando Castile. Where is she? What happened to her? We need to find these Black women. We need to find these Black people because if we lose them, I think we lose lose everything. Amen, amen. You know, all of that just seems to strike me. You've mentioned it a couple of times now, the third reconstruction, it is a continuation. It is our our watch. It is our time. It's our watch. You know, there are allies and thinking of, those images of King at all marching, Brother Lewis at all marching, you know, with dogs sicking them and just marching and, and, and we march on. And uh, it's this has been an extraordinarily inspiring, awesome, awesome conversation. Thank you. For me, too.
for me over this Thank past you. year to, to like, Go ahead, Ivan, no, I'm no, sorry. no, sorry, I'm moved. I'm moved. So I'm talking over people. I'm talking over and I'm interrupted. Sorry <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some things that I've had to face myself in terms of what I understand about history and that, um, that, that I realized there is so much black excellence that I thought that the, when I was growing up, it was only taught, you know, that it started with MLK and then, and that's where it started. Right. And so as time has gone on and I learn more and I'm more and more, I go, Oh my God, why do I think that it only goes back to 1960 or 1950 or 1925? Like it's the mid it's, it's from the moment that we got here, 1877, it goes back so far yes. that learning about that of not of that 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 excellence across culture we're talking about black culture you know i can speak to you know things i don't know about filipino culture that it has not made it to a platform so it's so interesting that when we realize how many non how many truths have been told without surrounding truths which makes those truths we've been told lies <laughs> and so that's the part where I find like, who are the authors of history? And, um, you know, we send our, I send my kids to school and I said, don't believe, you know, don't believe anything they say. Question everything. <laughs> Question everything. And you know what? The, the Russians understood that during the Russian revolution, they would always fight to take the notes because whoever took the notes controlled the meeting. Yes. And whoever controlled yes. the meeting controls history. Yes. And so that's why it's important to, to say we need to be the people who keep the notes, who are the people who are keeping the books, who go back and say, no, we'll write the book. We don't care for me. Because the worst thing about what we're doing as the people, they fear, oh, we don't fear what you don't know. Fear the continuance of ignorance. Anything that acts as a barrier to greater understanding yes. obstruct our talent and our participation in this great third reconstruction. I mean, and we need you. We need you to prepare a warrior's toolkit yes. to go combat the downward forces of progress. But the truth is, this is a battle. And it's going to take creative thinking and strategies to beat it. They, they understand it better than we do on the side of darkness. They actually use very simple templates to seed ideas. And we, who are the greatest idea makers in the world, do not play with our full force. And we have got to stop thinking that way. We have the power. Amen to that. You, you got to be a surgeon with it. You got to go. I, I love what you're saying. You got to go to war because you're right. They're fighting dirty. Absolutely. I can't remember who the individual was that said, they said, I think our problem is, our problem is we love. Their problem is they hate. Yeah. Yeah. And I do believe that it takes, you have to have a healthy dose of both. Not that hate so much, but I to so really too. to understand yes. that if you hate, ignorance. If you hate racism, you got to go down and beat it. I hate ignorance and I hate racism. So how do I beat that? Because it's acting on itself through that person. So how can you change their narrative? Because truth won't, won't get there. And so, but there are ways J Roddenberry did it through mm, Star Trek. Olivia, he showed Olivia. us a way to yes, talk about yes. these things. You know, it's science fiction is a way to talk about now, the now, you know, and and we first interracial kiss absolutely and 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 again anybody that's in that space 
is on the front lines. It is not necessarily in Congress. Those people, to me, they can take the, the momentum we give them and push things forward. But the narrative, guess who's coming to dinner? All these things, the reason why Sidney Poitier was so important, the reason why we talk about colorism and it acting towards saying, why can't, um, where, why can't Yvonne be the fullness of who she is? Let's tell stories from that point of view. Let's see mm-hmm. what it is to be Filipino, African-American. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we can't suddenly see it as an other. And that's important. We need Asian and, and African-Americans to come together to combat this craziness. We yes. have to start telling a better story about who we are and about what we are mixed with. And it's not just with other people's DNA, it's the ideas that are starting, that are that mm. are stopping us. There are better ideas out there and we need to start to inculcate Everything that you're saying, it's so interesting, but, and Jason knows I always talk about this book because I think it's amazing, but it's a book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. And she talks about- Isabel yeah, Jason Wilkerson. Jason just looked over Isabel at the book because I put it on his desk. Yes, it's all over. You I bought, bought it, so okay. I have to read it. When you get it. done yeah. reading it, girl, you have to call <laughs> me. We have to it. talk about it. It's 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 not it's not a small it's not a guide. It's it a big, big, big book. I gotta but she, it's a, it's a gonna be a long <laughs> night in the theater. <laughs> but she but weaves she, in she basically everything that you're saying, she weaves in personal story with history. There it is. So I think that all of those things go together. And so, you know, the thing that we think we're fighting, we think it's racism, but it's actually caste. And so every time we think we're in racism, oh yeah, that's true. Racism is really like a, it's it's a ruse that we think we can conquer, but we're Absolutely. fighting the wrong. We're looking in the wrong direction. It's really over there. And so I found it so fascinating. We've been, been hoodwinked, been bamboozled. Uh, you know, <laughs> Come on, yes. and there needs to be yes. a coalition of people that this is their main focus, and we all are able to have us each other on like speed dial. I'm doing this thing. Is there one? Is there a speed dial yeah. for people who are doing this work? Well, like, yeah, it's right. We, we, you yes, speed dial me, and here I am. I'm <laughs> hey, 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 no. This is it. This, I mean, this is it. This we're, is, we're, this, <laughs> you said we need to have yes. it. I'm like, Yvonne, yes. you are it. <laughs> we're, we're here. You are it. We need, 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 need more people like you who are really out there, again, on the front lines and willing to, to risk it all. And to that inspiration. Game recognized game like-mindedness, recognize like-mindedness, and cheers. Cheers. Here's to the third reconstruction, brothers. To the third reconstruction. Yes. It'll come. It'll come soon. (laughs) Change gonna come. Thank you. Change gonna come. Change gonna come. History is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to understand it, to question it, and to make it a part of ourselves. Art follows suit, as does identity. It is up to you what you do with it. Let's be responsible to what we've been given. This podcast is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Logger Lane Spirits co-producers and writers, Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Ceresi, co-producer Matthew Ceresi, podcast coordinator Amanda Dinsmore, sound designer David B. Marling, The Launch Guild, and Toby Gad for his original piano improvisation.
We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guest, Erica Alexander. Remember to grab our Bookman Daiquiri recipe and show notes by going to lagerlanespirits.com. We'll see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.